Last week we learned that Jesus has taught us how to pray. We learned about prayer. Because Jesus knew the importance of prayer for spiritual sustenance. That is, Jesus knew how prayer would sustain his disciples and also how the churches they planted across the ancient world would be sustained in prayer. Why? Because prayer sustained him. Prayer sustained Jesus. He was always spending time in prayer. Yet we don't know all the things he was praying to the Father because Jesus prayed mostly in private. And this is what he tells his disciples. He said, when you pray, don't do it like everybody else. Don't do it like the hypocrites. Who, who go out in public to be seen as praying people in the street corners and in the synagogues. No, you go to your Father who is in secret. Go into your inner room. Go to your house and go into your inner room. Prayer was part of Jesus' individual daily routine. Communing with the Father was like waking up in the morning. Getting dressed for the day. Having your daily coffee. Whatever it is that you do every day. You've got those things, right? You, you just can't go through the day without it happening. Usually kind of first thing. First, first hour of, of your day. This is something that you do. Jesus, Jesus was like that but with prayer. We find him, he's always praying. Because prayer sustained him daily. Often he was found praying throughout the night while his disciples were sleeping. Prayer sustained Jesus and prayer sustains the church. Sustains Christians. Our peace amid trials. Our power and effectiveness in ministry. Our very future is being shaped by our prayer. By our prayer life. Today our weekly focus, we've been focusing on different parts of church life. Today our weekly focus on the church collides with the concept of worship. The concept of worship. Today we discover how if prayer sustains us, then worship aligns us. It aligns us with the very power source behind the prayer that sustains us, namely God. God sustains us in prayer and God aligns us in worship. Prayer for praying's sake is not effectual. There are many people around the world who pray and pray and pray, but they're not praying to the right God. And so praying for prayer's sake is not effectual. Sustaining prayer must be addressed to the one who, remember from last week, who hears and what? Knows. He's the one who hears and knows. And so sustaining prayer is prayer that is directed to that God, the one true God. Likewise, reasonable worship, as Paul calls it in Romans chapter 12, reasonable worship must be aligned with the one intelligent designer of the universe, the unmoved mover, the first cause of all things. As Anselm described him, that than which nothing greater can be conceived, or as the Apostle Paul would say, in him all things live, move, and exist. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one that we worship. So then the church is identifiable as the people of God by our worship of God. The way in which we worship aligns us to God himself. This is evident from all the Bible beginning in the Old Testament and carrying throughout the New Testament as well. And brothers and sisters, this is the kind of alignment we want. We want to be aligned with God. We want our worship to be aligned to God. 
While it may be tempting to align our worship to other things such as cultural norms, fashionable trends, cutting-edge technology, political fads, traditional moorings, and contemporary moods, we must not become distracted from being intensely theological in our worship. Say, whoa, theological, that's a, one of those crazy words. It just means God-centered. It means that we are God-centered in our worship. It means that we're concerned with the way we worship, the things we say, our behavior, where we worship. Because if we're God's people, it matters how we worship. Nothing matters more in our worship of God than our knowing God. We want to know Him in our worship and we want to make Him known in our worship. We must know who He is, how to interact with Him, and how to glorify Him in our lives. Those three things are what we're going to focus on this morning in Scripture. We must know who He is, how to interact with Him, and how to glorify Him in our lives. And so our worship is aligned with God when three things happen. Number one, when we rightly appraise Him. Not praise, but appraise Him. When we rightly appraise God. That is, when we think of God in the right way. When we identify Him as who He actually is. He reveals Himself to us. And for us to be worshiping in the right way, we have to know who he is. We have to engage with his revelation and see him for who he really is. That is, we can't guess as to who he might be. We have to open up his word and learn who he has shown himself to be. So, number one, we have to rightly appraise God. Number two, we must rightly approach God. We must rightly approach him. So just to think of him in a certain way is not, is not the whole picture. The second step is to be able to approach him in a way that is fitting to his person, to who he is, to who he's revealed himself to be to us. We have to rightly appraise him, we have to rightly approach him, and then finally, we have to rightly appreciate him. We have to rightly appreciate God. That is, when we, when we get to know who he is, when we learn who he is, who he's revealed himself to be, and we approach him, and we're able to commune with him, which, by the way, we can only do today through Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus that we can approach the throne of grace. It's only through him that we have access to God. But once we're there, once we have access to God and we commune with God and we're worshiping with God, then we have to live a life of appreciation, of being in his presence and knowing who he is. And so worship doesn't just take place in a room like this one day a week for an hour. Worship is something that carries on throughout the rest of your day, throughout the rest of your week, throughout the rest of your life as a Christian. As you walk and talk and live and move and exist, you are worshiping God in one way or another. You're giving him glory in some way or another. So let's look at a right appraisal. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is something that God in his grace 
reveals to his people. We go back to Exodus chapter 3. You'll see it there in the Old Testament. Turn in your Old Testament. The second book of the Bible. Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. You might remember the story of Moses. A man whom God approaches. Reveals himself to. He has a special assignment for Moses. And in Exodus 3, starting in verse 1, I'll read. Follow along in your Bibles with me. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now. And see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Notice what happens here. God has a history with a peculiar people. The children of Abraham. When he appears to Moses, he identifies himself. He doesn't just say, you should be really impressed with this bush that's not being consumed. You should know that, that I am divine because this is happening. No, he, he doesn't just leave Moses with a sign He identifies himself and tells Moses who he is. So that Moses can rightly appraise who God is. What is this thing that's happening? And so he says, this is who I am. I'm the God of your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God gives Moses and his children in the Old Testament a way to appraise him. A way to think of him. He identifies himself so they know who he is. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel compares the one true living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of David. He compares and contrasts the true living God with the dumb idols that his captors worshipped. In Daniel 5, 23, listen to his words. We'll start in verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Though you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. So he doesn't just say, you've done a bad thing. He says, there's one to whom you must answer. And so he says in verse 23, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of this house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone which do not see, hear or understand. Notice the contrast there. But the God in whose hand 
are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. You see that? The prophet of God is contrasting, the word of God is contrasting who he is with who the dumb, lifeless idols of gold, wood, hay, and straw, and all of this were. It's like, no, this God lives, this God hears, this God sees. He's different. He has the whole world in his hands. The God in whose hand you are your life breath and your ways. Isn't that ironic that they were worshiping a God who had no life breath? The God of Daniel, the God of the Israelites, our one true living God is the one who the very first verses of scripture, the very beginning of time says that God spoke and it was God breathed life into human beings. He is our life breath. And here we find people worshiping a lifeless, breathless God. Is it true today? That people today worship lifeless, breathless gods? Gods of bronze and gold? Fame, fortune, popularity, fitting in, keeping up with the Joneses? Fill in the blank. But God's people must have a right appraisal of him. We cannot confuse him with others. We can't confuse his ways with the ways of the world. Again, we see it in Jeremiah chapter 10. I know you're doing a lot of page turning today. Jeremiah chapter 10. This is so important. You gotta see this. In Jeremiah 10 verses one through 16, there's a, this is a pretty wide swath of scripture, but I, we, we, have to, we have to read this. Jeremiah 10 starting in verse one. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. This is Jeremiah 10, 1. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver, with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them for they can do no harm nor can they do any good. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great and great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like thee. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought up from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. And the work of craftsmen, the hands of a goldsmith, violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes at the, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom. 
And by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings out the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob, listen, he distinguishes God from these others. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Amen? Amen. We must have a right appraisal of God. And he tells us who he is. In Acts chapter 17, there's a taste of the New Testament. When Paul goes to Athens and he introduces himself to the philosophers, he introduces the gospel to the philosophers who debate in the Areopagus. He says, starting in verse 24, he says to them, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Do you see the distinction he makes? He says you can't have any old appraisal of God. You can't think of the one true God any way that you want to and then enter into worship. You have to see how distinct he is from everybody else. He does not dwell in temples made with human hands. Neither, verse 25 says, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. You see the distinguishing marks of our one true living God? He's different. He's different. And, and the church is marked by how we are aligned in worship to him. People can see if we're God's people. The nations can see if we're God's people by how we worship. And you might think, well, what does that mean? It's like contemporary style, traditional style. Sometimes when we think of worship, where do we immediately go? We go to what? Music. That's not at all what the Bible is talking about when it talks about worship. We think of styles. It's not about music styles or the way that we dress or where we are or how long or how short or, or whatever. It's not about that. It's about are we reflecting in our hearts and lives with our, not just with our mouths, but with the meditation of our heart, who the one true living God is. Every day, in every relationship, and in everything that we do, do we have a right appraisal of God? We must have a biblical theology of God. That is, we must think of God the way he reveals himself to us in scripture. We can't wing it. We must have a right appraisal of who he is in order for our worship to be legitimate. There are so many times in the Old Testament where God's people try to wing it for one reason or another. Either it's that they see the nations and how they worship and they go, well, hey, you know, the, the nations, they have Asherim. You know, they have these, these temples set up. They have these shrines in the corner of their living room in their home. In order for us to be, uh, you know, legitimate, in order for us to blend in and get along with everybody, we should adopt these things too, maybe. 
It's not that bad. As long as we're a worshipful people, as long as we're passionate, you know that years ago, uh, back I think, I think it was in like 1997 or something like that, there was this big great college movement. And every year they would have these conferences of, and these were long worship conferences. You know what it's called? It's called Passion. And they'd make CDs of the worship service and they would sell them to all the students. I remember because I bought a lot of those CDs. I was part of that. And as time went on, as I grew as a Christian, I noticed something. Worship is not all about passion. You can be super passionate about your worship and not be worshiping the way God intends for you to worship because you're not worshiping in a biblical way. Your actions in worship are not reflective of who God is. Remember, he sees, he knows. He sees and he knows. So that brings us to our second point, which is not only must we rightly appraise God, but secondly, we have to rightly approach him. To have a right appraisal of him and not to rightly approach him is, is not in line with the way God teaches us how to worship. In Exodus chapter 28, turn back. You're like, man, I wish you had told me to keep my finger in Exodus if I knew we were coming back. In Exodus 28, verses 40 through 43. Now, this was, this was a time when, when the temple worship was in play and God was giving the priest commandments on how to present themselves uh, before the altar. So listen to this. He says, And for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics. You shall also make sashes for them. You shall make caps for them. For glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall make for them linen uh, breeches <laughs> to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting. Or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. There is a way in which God warned his people, do not approach me lightly. It was a dangerous thing to approach God lightly in the Old Testament. There's a time in the Old Testament where the, the, the people of God are moving the ark of the Lord. And he had already given them warnings on how to handle the ark. And it was tottering. It was about to fall and two men reach out and they grab it to steady it. And guess what happens to them immediately? They die. They die. In Malachi chapter 1, as the period of silence is getting ready to begin... Several hundred years of silence before, uh, between the time of the minor prophets and the coming of Jesus and John the Baptist on the scene, we find the priests under the judgment of God because of the way they flippantly approach God. They think it's not a big deal when you come into God's presence. We've been doing this for a long time. I meet Christians all the time who are like, you know what, I've been a Christian pretty much all my life. You know? I've been drugged to church since I was a kid. Sometimes people in ministry, when you serve and you volunteer, you get tired, don't you? It's a real thing. 
But listen to, listen to the laziness and the tiredness that comes on the part of the priests in God's judgment. He says in verse 7, Malachi 1, You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? That is, God, why are you taking it personally? It's just food. <laughs> he says, in that you say the table of the Lord is to be defiled or despised. He's saying, in the, what you're communicating, when you bring your last and your worst to me, to present to me, when you approach me that way, you are communicating theology to one another, to me, and to the world. And that is, the table of the Lord is to be despised, is to be hated. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? He asked in verse 8. When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why don't you offer it to your governor? That is your secular Lord, right? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive it kindly? You kindly, says the Lord of hosts. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be, cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is to be feared among the nations. Kindling useless fire. He says, oh, that there were one priest who would shut the door to the temple and say, we got to stop this. This is not worship. This is not worship. But there were none who would shut the door. We must rightly approach God the only way we can rightly approach God today that, that human beings can is through Jesus Christ. Through the new covenant, we have with God through Jesus Christ, his son, only through him can we approach God. Only those who are in Christ, only Christians can approach God in worship. Anyone can call out to God, save me. We learned that from Romans 10, right? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe with all of your heart, if you trust him, if you confess your sin before him and believe in Christ, you will be saved. But when it comes to worship, when it comes to Christian worship, Christian worship is distinct from all the other worship in the world. We have to approach God in a specific way we approach him through Christ and in Christ. Hebrews 10, 
verses 19 through 22. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That is, no more, no more special clothing for the sons of Aaron, for the ministers. That, that, that's not going to save you in God's presence. That's not going to preserve you in God's presence. No, it's, it's only the blood of Jesus. Since therefore, brothers, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That is how we come into God's presence as Christians in worship. With a sincere heart. Full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can rightly approach our God. The way we do that as Christians is we come in full confession of who we are. We don't try to pretend but we confess, God, this is who I am. And I need Christ today. I need him in this moment to cover me. Or else I'm a dead man in your presence. I'm a dead woman in your presence. A right appraisal, a right approach. And then finally, a right appreciation. Jesus quotes Jeremiah chapter 12 when he talks about this issue of the heart and the mind. I'll take you back to the original, Jeremiah 12, verse 2. Jeremiah is complaining to God. He's talking about those who are living wickedly in Israel. He says in verse 2, Thou hast planted them, they have also taken root, they grow, they have even produced fruit. Thou art near to their lips, but far from their mind. Jesus would say, near to their lips, but far from their heart. Their mouth professes something, but their heart doesn't live it doesn't live it out there there's no appreciation of who God is and the and the worship that we can have and experience with him there's no there's no living it out in their daily life lips that are near but hearts and minds that are far from God Jesus would call these people very much like this when he talked about those in prayer the other day hypocrites two-faced types of people who have a who have a great understanding in their mind of who God is. They, they know the word of God. They know how God has revealed himself to be. They can tell you all about the omnis, the, that God is omnipotent, that he's omniscient, that he's omnipresent. They can talk about how you know, God is, is fully divine, that he's three in one, that he's transcendent yet eminent, that he's merciful, that he's just. They can tell you all these things about God because they have the theology right in their head. It's just everyday life. 
They don't have an appreciation. They don't have a personal relationship with God. They have all the head knowledge there. The same was true with the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 5, Amos says the same thing. Verses 21 through 24. God says through the prophet Amos. Now remember, Israel at this time, uh, he talks about Bethel. Bethel was a worship center in Israel. It was known to be the place where you went to worship. Throughout the book of Amos, God warns his people, don't go to Bethel. If you're wanting revival, don't flock to the worship city. And think that putting on a happy face and walking into the worship service, that that's, that that's going to make things right. It's your everyday life. It's not one day a week for an hour. And so he says this in verse 21. He says, I hate. That's pretty strong, isn't it? I hate, I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But notice what he said. He doesn't leave them there. He says, this is what you need to do. This is where my heart is. Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Live and move and exist in a way that reflects the God that you worship. Sometimes the, the passion of our worship, the, the way we demonstrate physically how we worship, we think that 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 that's where the quality is. How loud can we be? What kind of beautiful presentation can we have? There's even, folks, you've got to be really careful here. There's even a, a, a new fad in the evangelical church for creativity in worship. That is that worshiping God is better the more creative we are in worship. Folks, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. To think that creativity is what makes worshiping God valuable or better. No, it's not creativity. It's obedience. It's faithfulness. When God says, this is how I want you to worship me, we are not to go, you know, I got some pretty good ideas about that, Lord. I think I could spin that and make that really cool. That is not what we are to do. Why? Because the reason we want to do that is because the culture says if you want to be accepted by us, if you want us to come to church and think that it's cool, you need to do these things a little differently. And we go, okay. But that's not what God tells us to do. God says, you leave the convincing to me in my Holy Spirit. We will convince the people in your culture of their sin and the beauty of the gospel. We'll do that. We'll convict them. You be obedient to worship me for who I say that I am and who I divulge to you that I am. You be faithful and obedient to do that. Because worship is all about your relationship with me. That's what God is saying to us in his word over 
and over and over again. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. Anytime you hear that word brethren, in the New Testament, and the, the Apostle Paul is using that word in an epistle, he means church. Church. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Some of your versions might say your reasonable service of worship. Why is that word translated reasonable? Because Paul is saying there's only one logical way to worship the one true living God. The God who created everything. The God who sent his son to save us. There's only one way to worship him and that is with your life. Not just with your mouth. Not just with your words. Not just with your mind. But there's only one logical way. One way that makes sense to worship God. And that is for who he is in every area of life, every second, every day. That's worship. Worship is not a place. Worship is not a service. You go to some churches, they'll have like a sanctuary. The sanctuary is not where God dwells. He's omnipresent. It's called a sanctuary because it's for us. It's a place for us to go. And see other brothers and sisters and pray and spend time with the Lord together. Some churches will have a specific building called a worship center. I think that's a terrible misnomer. To call the place a worship center. There is no worship center in this world. It's wherever God's people are where we're giving ourselves and we're Giving up of ourselves, as Paul says, as living in holy sacrifices before God, that is a place of worship. Present your bodies. Why? To be renewed. To be made new. That happens in worship. A high appraisal of God without a right approach to God, that is thinking of God, thinking highly of God, but not approaching God and not appreciating God basically boils down to deism. The deists are those people who believe that God exists, but he spun the world around and he stepped away. He is not involved anymore. There are many people in the world today who believe there's a God, but that he's not involved. So I can't approach him and it doesn't matter how I live. That's a deistic way of thinking of God, a deistic way of worshiping or not worshiping God. Furthermore, a high appraisal of God without a fitting appreciation of God tends toward legalism. There are those religious people who will have a high appraisal of God. They'll believe a lot of things about God, but it doesn't affect the way they live. They don't live in appreciation of God. They, they don't present their bodies living in holy sacrifice every day. 
But boy, do they know all about God. They could tell you everything about God. They know all the highfalutin theology words and all those things, but they don't live according to his grace. These are called legalists. Legalists. A bold approach to God without a proper appraisal of God leads to charismaticism. Let's say that again. A bold approach to God without a proper appraisal leads to charismaticism. That is, that someone who enters into worship without really thinking about, not even caring about who God reveals himself to be, but that worship is all about the mood and the emotion and what's going on in the room. That leads to charismaticism. That is that worship is more about the way that you feel and the things that you do and what other people are doing around you, the mood in the room. That's what happens when we have a bold approach to God but we're not careful about thinking about who God is. That is where a lot of our Christian society in the U.S. is today. Because we focus a lot on the man side of it, the, the, the human side of worship, and not the God side of worship, the divine side. A formal approach to God, without an outward appreciation of God, creates apathy, formalism. That is, having a good idea of who God is and what God has done in Christ without being renewed in your heart and life tends to formalism. The Pharisees were very much like this. John the Baptist warned them as they came to be baptized in the River Jordan. He says, who warned you, you brood of baby snakes? Who warned you about the coming wrath? Who warned you about the Messiah? And then he says to them, and don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because God can raise from these stones children to Abraham if he wants to. See, the Pharisees, John was pointing out, had a great theology of God. They knew about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Man, they had their lineage down pat. But John said, you're missing something. God can create a lineage out of anybody, out of anything. So if you have a good idea of who God is, you might even have a good idea of what the gospel is. But if you're not being transformed in your heart and mind by the power of the gospel because you're fully submitted to Christ, you will tend towards formalism. And you might be a churchgoer, you might be a nominal Christian for a long time, but God requires us as Christians to have a right appraisal of him, to rightly approach him, and to have a right appreciation of him. Jesus says to the woman at the well, he encounters in Samaria. He's talking to her about living water, and she turns the conversation like many people do today. Hey, let's talk about, let's talk about religious stuff. Talk about church matters, you know? What is your opinion on the rapture? What is your opinion on the gift of tongues? What is your opinion on this, that, whatever? He says, she asked him, 
Where are we supposed to worship? Your people say we should worship in Jerusalem. But our fathers say we should worship here. They worshiped here on this mountain. Jesus says there is coming a time when you will neither worship there or here. But he says this about the true worshipers. He said, but the true worshipers, true worshipers are who my father is seeking. Those who worship in spirit and in truth. We can't have the truth without the spirit and we can't have the spirit without the truth. Jesus tells us how to worship. Brothers and sisters, the church is aligned with God by our worship. Not just the gathered church, but also when we are scattered abroad. When each of us as individuals leave this place, we are aligned with God by our worship. Each of us is aligned with God and identifiable as his people by the way in which we appraise him, approach him, and appreciate him. Let us humble ourselves before him today. Amen. Let us seek to be true worshipers. Only in Christ do we get a a clear picture of God's full glory. Only in Christ can we boldly approach the throne of grace. And only in Christ can we live a worshipful life of renewal. Are you in him? I pray that you are. If not, he invites you to be. He invites us. He calls us. He hasn't stopped. Not until he returns is it too late. He invites us to come to him, to be in him. Are you in him today? I'm going to pray that I'm going to invite Mike to come and close us. Father, we pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, God, that you would again impress upon us who you are and who we are. Our need for you, our need to be near you. God, that you would show us how to worship you. That we can't start worshiping you until we know you better. God, that our worship as a church and as each family represented here and each individual, God, that our worship would be molded by our knowledge of who you are and our relationship with you through your son, Jesus. God, that we would be marked not only by being a church that knows a lot about you or being a church that's really excited about you, but Father, that we would be marked as a church that knows you, that approaches you according to your will and your way, and God, a church that appreciates you not just one hour of the week, but Lord, in our daily lives. So Lord, I ask that as we go throughout this week, God, that you show us your glory that on Monday morning, that tomorrow as we get up and get ready for work and all the demands of the week, Father, that we face every day, week in, week out, God, I pray, I pray, Lord, that we see your glory in the day, that we wake up and we 
We dwell upon you. We see you. And we not get distracted by the world. And that we end up putting off worship until Sunday. Thinking that it's the only day that we can recognize who you are and what you're doing. God, that we would realize that the enemy is, is there all the time wanting to distract us and saying, he's not watching, he's not listening, he doesn't hear you. Things are too crazy in your life right now. Father, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us and that we would be listening. And Father, that we would present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices to you every day. And I confess, Lord, this is so difficult for me to do. Lord, would you help us by your strength, by your might, and by your grace. In Jesus' name.